0: From the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, this is In Conversation With. Supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Presented by Stuart Alford and produced by Fresh Air Studios Plymouth.
1: Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with another edition of our In Conversation With podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined in the studio today by Amanda Keatley from Devon Environment Foundation. Welcome, Amanda.
2: Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. I've met you a few times. I know a little bit about Devon Environment Foundation, but maybe our listeners don't. So I will give you the sort of one minute elevator pitch. So hit us with it. Tell us about DEF.
2: Yeah, thank you. The Devon Environment Foundation was set up just over three years ago and we channel funds from individuals and businesses to grassroots nature restoration projects in Devon.
1: That was quicker than I thought. Less I was ready for more. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I Nobody thought we'd expand flat. as we chat. Yeah, absolutely. Where did your love of the environment come from? Is this what you've always done? Have you always been in an environmental type of role?
2: No, I haven't. I mean, I have always had a love for the environment. Actually, I spent my childhood in Canada up to about the, Age of seven. Yeah, I don't oh, think well. many didn't people know that. Know that. Yeah, and that I sound feel Canadian. No, although some people sometimes say I have a slight twang to my accent. But yeah, up to the age of seven, I grew up in Canada, and and then basically my parents moved to the southeast of England, and various things happened. Obviously, went to school, university, travelled a bit, did languages, but always deep down, I did love nature, and sort of was a member of Greenpeace and things when I was a student. But I didn't really listen to that voice inside for quite a few years and had sort of more of a traditional career trajectory and then had kids. And then we were lucky enough to move to Devon 10 years ago now. That was, yeah, end of 2013. Yeah. Yeah, So 10 years ago, we moved to Devon, to Kingsbridge. And that really was a point where I felt that part of my being, my essence was reawakened. And... I think Devon has a lot of similarities to how I remember Canada anyway, because I've only really visited once as an adult. You know, being green, having lots of water. You know, I live near the estuary, so I get to see beautiful views every day. And it really helped me reconnect and reawaken that part of myself. So my career as an environmentalist actually started... A couple of years after moving to Devon, when I noticed the plastic pollution on the beaches, you know, in the winter and started sharing that on social media and campaigning. Well, it led to me campaigning and I set up my own nonprofit called Less Plastic and was very lucky that, in fact, Greenpeace, again, international, shared an infographic that I had created called Nine Tips for Living with Less Plastic.
0: Right.
2: And that kind of went really viral. And I had a huge following on social media for a while there. And that's kind of how I got into environmental campaigning, using my career skills and my marketing skills for the environmental messages.
1: Right. So you developed that infographic?
2: Yes. So it was basically my idea and my design, although I worked with a graphic designer. I'm not actually a graphic designer. Mm. So I worked with someone. She's a friend who I used Mm. to work with in a previous job. And so she did the design implementation. But it was kind of my idea of the wording and what we would say. And then we ended up doing a series of them. So it started off as nine tips for living with less plastic. But then we did one for the workplace, for schools, various things, traveling, festivals, parties, and Christmas, and we also then translated them into many different languages because they're quite simple and visual and they just have very few words on each tip. I ended up having people from all over the world. It ended up being 28 languages, actually. People would get in touch and say, can we put it in our language? We're like, yeah, of course. Did you say earlier
1: you had a background in languages? You studied languages?
2: Yes, but I don't feel hugely confident in my French and Spanish skills anymore. I did a degree in French and Spanish and did it mainly because I really enjoyed it. I was never going to be an interpreter or a translator. (laughs) (laughs) But I did enjoy my time in France, Spain, and being able to get by.
1: I can order a gin and tonic or a beer in about five different languages, but that's about it. Well, Um, that's the
2: most critical thing to be able to do.
1: I can't remember which actor it was. He said, I speak two languages, English and bad English. That was about it. I'm always really embarrassed. (laughs) I go on motorcycle tours with my mate, and he switches between English, French, and Spanish. And, And I'm just standing there like a complete... English twit, you know, raising my voice and waving my arms about it, as if that's going to help to sort of get people to understand me. I make the effort, but I've got to say I'm not great at it. I mean,
2: language. you can communicate quite a lot with raising your voice and waving your hands, to Where be Where
1: is the beach? As if that helps. Yeah. I mean, and now, of course, we've got Technology on our phone that translates it for you.
2: Yeah, I know. Which is
1: just, it's like Star Trek, Universal Translator. That's what I need.
2: We basically don't need our brains anymore, do we?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah, I know what you mean. Everything's kind of done the for phone. us. I can remember as a kid, I hated learning. It's terrible, isn't it, that some people love learning, mm. are just never connected with it. And I always remember thinking, why can't they just implant a chip in my brain? It's got all <laughs> this stuff I'm supposed to know, you know, all this boring stuff.
2: So you've predicted the future. Well,
1: there we are, yeah. I mean, if stuff's interesting, of course, you don't realise you're learning, do you? And I think the things I was passionate about at school are stuff that we had good teachers who were passionate. So my English mm. teacher, who sadly died in his 50s, was... A lovely man who was just so passionate about English literature that you picked that up. And our physics yep. teacher was really excited about physics, and I was good at that. And so I that definitely I
2: had a politics teacher like that, and Did it got you? me into politics.
1: Oh, but I'm not into it anymore. No, Amanda <laughs> Keighley for <Yep>. prime minister?
2: <laughs> no way. No,
1: I'll let other who'd people be do in that? politics at the moment? <laughs> exactly. Let's not go down that route. Yep. <laughs> we are apolitical, so I'm not going to talk about anything that's going on in politics at the moment. <laughs> you talked earlier about positive nature so you're about nature positive rather than net zero like yes. yeah so what's the difference and what does that mean
2: okay well lots of people are focusing on the climate issue and obviously it is an issue but one of my concerns is that you could tackle an environmental problem like too much co2 in the atmosphere but you may still have other problems if you're just looking for the tech solution we really need thriving ecosystems to be able to survive and that means that the carbon cycle the water cycle nitrogen cycle are all in balance because it's all working how it should be with an abundance of species all interacting the way they should so i don't like looking at just plastic or just carbon or just pollution as an issue i think it's all you know we try and simplify things too much it is all intertwined And it was actually when I was feeling maybe a little bit burnt out and overwhelmed from looking at the plastic problem and how microplastics are everywhere. And just thinking, what have we done? How can we come back from this? My way of coping, and I don't know if it's scientifically backed up, but it helps me, is to think, okay, we can't stop all the bad that's happening in the world. But maybe what we can try and do is overwhelm the bad with the good. So, Plastic is out there, all sorts of pollution is out there. But if we focus our energies on restoring, regenerating nature, and we're part of nature, by the way, whereas all living things, plants, animals, humans on the planet today are probably going to be part of breaking down all the pollution that's out there. But it will be restoring equilibrium and hopefully give us a chance of getting things back to how it's meant to be. So that would be absorbing carbon dioxide, for example, in seagrass or trees or seaweed or whatever it is in the soil if we restore farming systems so that they work better for nature but it would also be more life more birds you know more insects more of everything that we need to be able to survive in a balanced ecosystem
1: have you read my questions because my next question was going to be <laughs> does the scale of the task depress you because it seems yeah. that everywhere we turn There's a problem. I know. And as you said, it's so complex.
2: It is so complex. And I'm not going to lie. There are some times where obviously it can feel overwhelming. But I think it's really important for all of us to find a way to be able to keep going because you're not going to do any benefit if you are just sat there thinking it's all too much. I can't do anything about it. I have been reading things over the years. There's a book called Active Hope. I think it's by Rebecca Solnit. And that had quite a good impact on me in the sense that even where things feel really hard, if you get on and do something towards the solution, you will automatically feel better. That really struck me as something none of us know if we're going to overcome the climate challenge or the biodiversity crisis. But actually, if you're getting involved with the solution and even if it's picking up plastic or, you know, really simple things or get involved in campaigning or planting trees, you will automatically feel better yourself. And then you're more used to everyone. Or we are all going to die in the end anyway. Sorry, I don't want to sound depressed. No, that's all right. But you will have had a good time before that point
1: comes. Well, you know, it reminds me of two things. One was the CEO of St. Luke's Hospice used to say in his sort of talks to business, he'd say, I've got bad news for you. You're all going to (laughs) die. And then, you know, once you've broken that barrier down, then you think, well, actually, yeah, we are. But so what So what in the bit before that? And so it, Do some good things
2: yeah, while so that, you can. It
1: reminds me of a yourself. fabulous cartoon. You've probably seen it, of a climate change summit and somebody in the audience is sticking their hand up and saying, but what if we make the world a better place and do all this stuff? And it's not true, you know, yeah. it wasn't a climate disaster. It's like, yeah, well, let's make it a better place anyway. <laughs> exactly. Let's do all this stuff.
2: And I just wanted to sort of come back. I don't think I answered part of one of your questions was on the Devon Environment Foundation. We don't necessarily look at the net zero carbon aspect only. We're all about nature positive, more nature, because that will solve multiple issues at the same time. It solves the water, the carbon, the pollution, and more life. You know, what's not to like? More birds, more bees.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, funnily enough, potentially this is a good way for you to give a little plug for the foundation and what business can do, because we had an event where we had a little spot in the proceedings where I went along and said to people, look, one by one, chair by chair, quick answer. What's your biggest concern at the moment? What's keeping you awake at night? What's your biggest challenge? And we went along and it was rising costs, lack of people, rising costs, new markets, lack of people. I went around the whole room and I got Mm. to the end and said, it's just dawned on me. Then one of you said net zero. So I said, can I just ask people why not? And a few people put their hands up and they said, it's not that it's not important. It's just, we don't know where to start. I mean, you know, when you're a business that's fighting, not having enough people, rising costs, inflation, Mm. interest rates, you know, there's just so much going on they don't know where to start so can they start with you?
2: Yeah they definitely can I mean obviously it's useful for them to work with someone internally or an external consultant to look at how to reduce their carbon footprint and other negative environmental things such as plastic pollution and things I'm not saying they shouldn't look at that and hopefully a lot of businesses feel like they know more about that. And there are multiple benefits, aren't there? Because if they reduce their energy waste, mm. then they're also reducing their bills. But as far as going that bit further and wanting to be part of the solution, you know, not just doing less bad, but actually being involved in doing more good. Yeah, That's where we like to think that if they're not experts in what are the best solutions to donate towards, we can be the people that can help. They can outsource that decision-making to us because we have a board of leading local nature experts that help make sure that we make credible decisions with where we award our grants. So we support the most innovative, the most impactful, yeah, the most uplifting nature-based solutions that are local in Devon. So if people really want to see any money they've donated go to things that will make a big difference. And it's a really wide range as well. You know, if they're wanting to tell positive stories about what they've been involved in via their donations to either their employees and or their customers, it's not that you're just going to be saying, oh, we're supporting one theme, which might be very good, whether it's plastic cleanup or tree planting, but we get involved in so many themes. They're they're actually able to talk about such a wide range of impacts, you know, we're also involved in rewilding and regenerative agriculture, some really innovative things using nature-based solutions such as mycelium and biochar to clean up water quality, which is Mm. obviously a big issue and in the news at the moment, you know, all sorts of projects. So we could give them also some positive stories to share on their marketing and social media so it's just a way for them to go further. Yes, they need to minimise their negative impact, but we've all got to a point with the environment where being sustainable isn't really enough. Even if we stopped doing everything bad that we're doing today, we do need to go that bit further and get involved with repairing the damage repairing. Yeah, that has so. been caused over the last, I don't know, 50 years. Yeah.
1: So we're anchoring on the brakes, but we're not yet in reverse. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Our last doom and gloom question then. I mean, (laughs) seriously, do you think the planet's doomed? Do you think we can still save it?
2: I think that no one... Even the people with the most negative viewpoints uh, who maybe have the access to the most scary science, no one knows, do they? How can we know? Because there's so many variables that are unquantifiable and tipping points, both positive or negative, that we really don't know. So we can choose what to believe. And why would we choose to believe we're doomed until we know that's a fact? And no one knows that's a fact. So let's keep trying, Mm. choose to believe it's all worthwhile and we're not doomed because Mm. during that time of your life that's left to the doom point or whatever, Mm. you're going to be happier. So Mm. yeah, that's my way of dealing with it.
1: It's going to lose a bit in translation because I can't remember who said it, but some environmentalist, somebody was asked, you know, are you worried, is the planet doomed? And he said, the planet will be just fine. True. The planet will still be here. It's whether we are still here is the issue. And, you know, nature is tremendous at regenerating when you just leave it to get on with itself. But as you say, Mm. we've got to stop damaging it first, haven't we? And... I'm lucky enough to go out on a boat occasionally, and I see the litter in the sea. I see the results for a dead dolphin. The first time I've seen mm-hmm. a dead dolphin floating, and I thought, like, oh, this is really sad. You know, know. You walk along the beach and you see all these microplastics. In fact, didn't I refer a company to you that had the hoover? Yes, the Nurdle. Yeah, hoovers up the microplastics. Yeah,
2: you did. On the you mentioned, and I actually saw him at the Blue Earth Summit a few weeks ago, and it was yeah, really nice to see. It's Josh Beach. Right. I think he's doing really well. He's had some interest from some bigger funders to. Actually actually create a value chain out of the plastic that he's collecting yeah. and other people are collecting and then they turn it into these massive boards that are being used instead of plywood for building.
1: That's right. Weren't they making phone covers and He was, like but he's
2: now scaled it up. Yeah, and it's yeah. gonna be bigger things, you know, that builders need and I think they're also doing kitchen worktops and
1: yeah. all oh, sorts. Well, that's so
2: brilliant. yeah eventually. sorry, just to
1: explain to people yeah. this is basically a huge hoover that hoovers the beach, takes out all the microplastics but leaves the biomaterial, was not it?
2: Yeah, he's not damaging the ecosystem of what's on the beach, you know, the little creatures that live there. But he's managing to remove those tiny plastic nurdles. They're in some ways, one of the most annoying pieces of plastic pollution, because they haven't even become anything useful yet. They're like the raw material that yeah. was due to be melted down to create Something made of plastic, but it's been spilt off a shipping container somewhere and washed Mm. up at various parts of the world. So, yeah, his invention is really impressive that he's found this way to remove it from the beach and then turn it into something useful.
1: It's fantastic, isn't it? And I saw recently that the latest thing they've discovered is going into the water course and turn, therefore the seas is rubber from tyres so when you get these tiny little beads of rubber as your tyre mm. degrades and it goes into the sewage system or into the water supply and ends up in the sea I
2: know and this is where it does get a bit overwhelming if you allow yourself because apparently electric cars are worse for that because they're heavier (laughs) so we're trying to be more Mm -hmm. environmental on one side but less on another but I have heard that there's some development on replacing tyres with more plant-based because they were originally rubber weren't they and then I think they became fossil fuel based so yeah so if they went back to doing tyres with something that's more of a natural solution that would be a really good fit.
1: I can see so. why you're on your job. You think about these things. Yes. You know about these things. Yes. <laughs> so to bring us on to something sort of slightly more cheery, not that the environment and the positive work you do isn't cheery, you've got some famous friends of the charity. <laughs> Have you met them?
2: No, no, I cannot claim that.
1: Oh, Um, but you've got famous supporters. Go on, who's your famous Well,
2: we've actually got two bands supporting us at the moment. So Coldplay have supported Devon Environment Foundation for two years. And I guess that's the Chris Martin link that he is from from Exeter. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And we also have Depeche Mode that have been funded via our mother charity, the Conservation Collective. So they are supporting, again, it's actually plastic in particular, part of their tour, they're raising funds with them and Hublot, the watch company. They're raising funds for plastic pollution cleanup all over the world, where we have 20 foundations all over the world. Some of those funds being channeled to South Devon to clean the coast between Plymouth and Brixham. So that's really exciting. And I don't know if they will be listening at all, but we're trying to attract Muse. Of course, of
1: course they listen to us.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Muse Muse are another Devon band that we've got some sort of friends of friends that know them and we really hope that they might get on board. And yeah, if there's any other people out there that have any contacts with Devon, anyone in Devon that has the money and would like, Kit to go to nature-based solutions that are making positive change happen locally in Devon, then yeah, we'd love to speak to them.
1: Well, when you become besties with them, because I'm sure you will, <laughs> if you persuade them to come on my podcast, it would be brilliant.
2: That would be amazing.
1: And in fact, genuinely, I mean, the one person I'd love to get on the podcast, but I just can't reach him is Simon Reeve, who, of course, okay. who's very much into travel particularly, but also mm. when he does his travels, he doesn't just look at the lovely, bright tourist side of all the places he goes, he looks mm. at everything else. Was it you telling me about Chris Martin's dad, who had a business in... Caravans, I think it was. It was I
2: caravans. have heard that, but I don't think yeah. I was telling you anything about it.
1: No, so somebody was telling me that Chris Martin's dad is quite successful in his own right, built up a caravan business over mm. many, many years. And Chris Martin's first single earned more than he'd ever done in his, oh. in his life. And he's that double-edged sword of, you must be very proud of your son, but thinking, oh my goodness, I've spent you know, 30, yes. 40, 50 years building up this business. And one single does it. Kurt Vonnegut, the author... And Joseph Heller, who wrote Catch-22, were at a party in New York. And it was one of these absolutely the most glamorous kind of quite debauched sort of party. It was run by this multi-billionaire who had Ferraris and Rolls Royces on the drive. He had supermodels serving the food. And it was like this, just anything you wanted, it was here. And uh, apparently Kurt Vonnegut said to Joseph Heller, he said, see this guy here? He said, he makes more money in a week. Than you made out of Catch 22, one of the most famous books of all time. And Joseph Feller said, Yeah, but I've got something he'll never have. He said, Really? What's that? Enough. And I thought, That's That's a lovely thing, isn't it? You know, because clearly, if you're that driven, you'll never have enough. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never think, Wow, lucky me, I've got it. You mentioned that you felt pretty overwhelmed at times with the job and the scale of the task. I have a lot of sympathy with that. Sometimes I do worry that modern life is incredibly difficult and hectic. Mm. And I'm going to do a lot of work in 2024 on looking after not just health and well-being, but particularly mental health Mm. and well-being. I think we're storing up a crisis actually in in, in mental health. But what do you do to get away from the day job and the worries Mm -hmm. and the stresses of that?
2: Well, probably ever since living in Devon, actually, it's been getting out in nature. We are so lucky what we've got here on our doorstep, whether it's going to the beach and having a nice dip, which I even did on Saturday when it was very cold, but I was Ooh. literally in for two minutes, so I'm not that
1: I big. was going to ask if you're one of these <laughs> mad people that go wild swimming.
2: Yeah, someone, but not for very long. Someone
1: told me, oh, yeah, it's it's great when you finish it. It's like, yeah, but that's like saying you stab yourself in the leg with a fork (laughs) and it's great when you stop stabbing yourself in the leg with a fork. I know.
2: Yeah, no, no, it is something about it that really does make you feel properly alive. Like all the colours look brighter when you're in there and, you know, obviously once you've caught your breath and you're breathing properly. (laughs) So yeah, part of it is for me, it's getting out in nature, having a walk in the woods or whatever. But also I've recently got quite into going to the gym again. I guess it's like a, a midlife crisis thing but, yeah, I'm trying to go weekdays, at least an hour a day. Just, an hour a day? Yeah.
1: Blimey. I'm doing two hours a week on a Wednesday night. We well,
2: started off with that, but and I've you've got... you've got the bug. Yeah, literally. Yeah. And I didn't think I would. I'm not... That sort of person normally. Yeah, no. I haven't been in the past, but I'm really enjoying that. And I think finding that's helping with the mental health side as well.
1: So, Funny you should say that. So, my chairman yeah. dragged me along to this group on a Wednesday night. We're called the X Men, not former men, <laughs> but X, as in, you know, the superheroes <laughs> on Yeah. And it's quite jokey, really, in that there's no sort of macho bull, to be honest. It's, you know, mm. we're a bunch of guys who probably should have gone to the gym a bit sooner. And what we've all realized is they're a nice bunch of guys who are really supportive. Mm. So, we're doing strength training. Trying to lift heavy weights, but we're not doing it in a sort of macho kind of way. It's just about building up your core and what have you. Yeah. And the guys are so supportive. You know, if you're really struggling, they're like, yeah, go on, Stu, push it out. Go on, really mm-hmm. go for it. Go for it. And there's lots of high fives afterwards. And we all said, do you know what? I think we'd meet even if we didn't do the gym. You know, yeah. it's just
2: as long as you don't skip that bit, <laughs> just yeah. get straight to the pub. Well, well, it has been. <laughs> Sounds mentioned like that's that we what need you're Some
1: Christmas angling. drinks. <laughs> well, you know, we might have to do that. But in all seriousness, I mean, the physical side is really important mm-hmm. but actually being in a supportive group of people who meet up once a week get out of the office not sat looking at a screen yeah really really helpful actually definitely i'm hurt actually didn't notice the new smell <laughs> of me i've only lost about <laughs> half a stone but i've got about two to go i think that's the problem
2: well yeah we're all on this journey aren't we but yeah. it's actually quite nice to be doing it not for i mean when you're younger it's maybe a bit more for you know, how you look. But now and I'm yeah. like literally thinking For this is feel. to, yeah, how I feel and protecting myself to have a better next half of the life.
1: yeah half
2: well, <laughs> half of adult life <laughs>
1: well, yes, yeah. it's funny, isn't it? Someone said recently one of my friends described himself as middle-aged unless it, so I Jason, Jason, it's middle-aged if you're going to live to 112. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not entirely sure yeah. it's really middle-aged, but there we are. <laughs> so you mentioned you'd done a bit of traveling when you were younger. Yeah. So what's your favorite parts of the world?
2: Mm. Well, at the moment, I'm actually living vicariously through my son, who is in Thailand and just went to mm. Vietnam actually yesterday. So because I've never done Asia, but that's not really answering your question I do have such a soft spot for Spain for Andalusia because Dang. that's obviously when I was doing my Spanish degree I was actually in this very small city called Jaen which is yeah. just north of Granada not many people would know of it in fact I was quite upset when I first heard I was going, because I was like, that's in the middle of nowhere. But once I got there, I met some of the best people, yeah. you know, and they really made me feel at home and helped me be fluent in bar talk, which was what was important when I was aged 20. So yeah, I would say southern Spain really does have a place very close to my heart.
1: Yeah, I did a motorcycle tour around Spain and Portugal and was taken by how beautiful it is actually because Mm. i don't know most people i think think of spain as being sort of quite dry barren beaches Mm. on the south coast we actually avoided you know the costa del sol and all that we went inland for that bit but we did the whole circumference we went into madrid and northern spain is beautiful and green and lush and Mm. you know it's an amazing country
2: yeah definitely and the people i just found were so friendly and if you were trying to learn the language they were just so forgiving as well when you make mistakes and yeah i just had a lovely time
1: so if you had to live anywhere else, would that be it, do you think?
2: Probably, yeah. I think it would be, actually. But well, I don't think we're allowed to these days, are
1: we? Well, No, probably not, no. <laughs> seeing as we've told all our neighbours where they can go, I exactly. think, um, yeah. Sadly. Anyway, don't get me on that. Yeah. The greatest <laughs> actor of shooting oneself in the foot in history. I think yeah. that'll go down us. But anyway, we're not political. We're not going to talk about that. So anywhere on the bucket list? Anywhere you think, oh, I really mm. want to go there?
2: Well, actually, a dream is coming true this Christmas. Ooh. Because on my bucket list... you um, to see Santa. No. <laughs> No, Costa Rica was on my bucket list, and we took quite a long time sorting out as a sort of family holiday. So now there's only three of us going out of the four because the other one's already left home. It took that oh. long. But yeah, we're going to Costa Rica this Christmas for two weeks.
1: So, bring back some coffee. Maybe. What do you mean, maybe?
2: <laughs> maybe chocolate. I
0: don't know. No, yeah, no, but I
1: think. No, not yeah, for the gym. Yeah, no, yeah. gym. Okay. Finally honed athlete like me, I have to be careful. Yeah. Coffee would be good, but okay. you've got to be careful when you bring back packets from Costa Rica. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that because from our perspective, it, you know, it's actually got Spanish. I get to speak Spanish there, but it's also, you know, all the biodiversity and wildlife. I can't wait yeah. to see that and sunshine in december so yeah
1: Sounds sorry to wonderful. make you feel no that's fine <laughs> no, that's great do you know i was talking to a friend of mine we really want thinking about where we want to travel and one of the things i want to do and it's funny it's not a place as such but an environment i want to be in i want to be somewhere really snowy in a sort of wooden cabin, somewhere where mm. there's a fire, you chop your own wood, away from the internet, away from everything, where it's completely silent at night, no mm. light pollution. Stars. He can't do the next, is it two years? So we've got January 26 penciled in that we're going to go somewhere maybe north of Norway, north of Canada, wow. somewhere like that. He and his wife and me and whoever I can drag along at the time mm. and just go and sit under the stars and breathe the real clean air and all that, that stuff. That sounds so nice. From an environmental point of view, is there somewhere?
2: Well, to be honest, Costa Rica is probably my environmental dream as well. Is Although it? I've got a colleague who's from Ecuador, she works for our mother charity, and her sort of thing is that Ecuador and Galapagos probably is better than Costa Rica, but Costa Rica are better at their marketing. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'll, the power I'll sort of marketing. Of, I know whether I'll sort of get the bug. Obviously, you know, and there's always that balance, isn't there? Should you be travelling? But my sort of view on that is none of us are perfect. And I haven't done sort of a big trip like that for, hmm, I don't know, eight years or something. Mm. So, you know, if you're not just doing it all the time, I think we all need to live a bit as well and get a balance, you yeah, know, I, do what you can, but you're not going to be perfect.
1: So. Of course not. And I get yeah. a bit irritated with this. You should never fly. Well, what's the point of life if you can't know, experience something? Exactly. I think you find the best ways to fly or offset or do whatever you can. And, yeah. you know, with everything you're doing, I think you're allowed every now and again. Well, exactly. You know? It's
2: balance. And yeah. I'm never going to sort of say that I'm perfect. And it was the yeah. same when I was doing the plastic campaigning. You know, I didn't want to call it zero waste. I called it less plastic. You know, yeah. what we can do to reduce yeah. our impact. But let's not make it impossible. Otherwise, yeah. we all give up, don't we?
1: <laughs> yeah. I guess it'd be like a nutritionist saying you can never have a piece of chocolate. Well-
2: yeah. That's what, nuts, why would I want to be alive yes. if I can't yeah. ever do
1: they say that if you cut out <laughs> coffee and chocolate from your life you remove 80% of what joy is left in it you exactly know? <laughs> just before we go just coming back to DEF what can business do to support you and does it have to be a huge amount of money a big project some massive thing or are there little things that people can do and what yeah. would the benefit for the business be thanks
2: for asking that question I think that several businesses choose us as the 1% for the planet partner so 1% for the planet is something that businesses like to do to have an easy way of showing their employees or their customers that they're giving back to nature and to the environment so that's something they could do they could choose us as their one percent for planet partner and I think it's one percent of sales but it might be one percent of profit Mm. so I'm not sure and they can choose to give it to more than one charity as well if they want to spread it Or they could literally just donate via our donate page, any amount, small to medium to large, you know, we can do good stuff because we pool it with our other donors. Mm -hmm. Some people like to sponsor a particular project and usually that's more in the sort of 10 to 20,000 mark because that's the average size of our grants. And that's also possible if they want to really sort of get involved in a more strategic way. And the benefits to them, really, I think I touched on them a bit earlier, but it's, well, if they're becoming something like a B Corp or needing some other official way of showing people externally and internally of their environmental credentials, proving that you're giving some of your profit to a charity, especially an environmental charity is very beneficial so we can be part of that but then there's also the whole marketing and storytelling and having different creative things and positive things you can talk to your customers internally and externally about and we have so many exciting different things you know that we can share with them whether it is cleaning up pollution or increasing biodiversity and nature you know whether it's pollinator projects in Plymouth. We helped Mm. with a pesticide-free campaign. Freshwater crayfish, we've helped with a hatchery. Increasing freshwater crayfish, that's at Wildwood East Devon. You know, there's so many things that they could get involved with. And then, you know, if they want their staff to do some volunteering as well, that's also possible, not necessarily directly via us, but we can put them in touch them in and be touch. part of the network.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really important thing is people want to, rather than just sort of give some money and it's over there and I'm not really interested, I've ticked my CSR box. I think yeah. they want to do something that they share values with that they can touch. and feel yeah. and In fact, I keep telling people that this is sort of top secret and mustn't tell anyone, but I think I've told so many people that it's not a secret anymore, but we're going to have a chamber forest. Mm. So we're going to plant a tree for every new and renewing member. And we're working with Steve Warren-Brown at YGS Landscapes to do that. We're trying to find a site. We think we found one. We're also going to launch in the new year B24, which is about getting 24 businesses on the B Corp journey in 2024. And we'll be working with Wildernet on that. So that's so good. Really exciting stuff. Thank you so much for all you're doing. It must be lovely to see all these projects and all the good stuff that's coming out of it. So stay positive, not just nature positive. um,
2: And I think that is actually the last point to say. They are brilliant people. There are so many people doing so many good things on the ground in Devon. And it's just really lovely to be able to be part of the making it easier, getting the money to them to help them do that more. And yeah. I yeah. feel very privileged.
1: There are some great people doing great things and you're one of them. So oh, um, Amanda thank Lee, you. thank you so much for joining us on In Conversation With.
0: Thanks very much. The conversation will continue. But first, Chamber Chief's quickfire questions.
1: Hello there, and welcome to the Chamber Chief's quick-fire questions, where I fire two minutes of rapid-fire questions at a person from our membership and try and basically embarrass them or get them to say something stupid, but none of them so far have. And today, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Nadine mashing Hello, Nadine. Come in, Nadine. Hello, Stuart. Hello. So, Nadine is HR partner at University of Exeter, and some of our listeners may recognize Nadine as you hosted our business awards. I did indeed. Yeah, well, funny enough, I'm rather annoyed with you and Paul Philpott because you did a better job than I did last year. So I probably won't ever be allowed to emcee it again. So no pressure on this quick fire questions, but you probably will find some of them pretty hard. So tell me, your HR partner at University of Exeter, what does that mean?
3: It basically means that I cover four areas in professional services this is the areas that I look after. I look after three and a half thousand staff. So you can imagine one person is hard enough to deal with, but I've got three thousand five hundred beautiful staff members at Exeter, but it's great. I enjoy it. I feel like HR is what I was born to do.
1: Well, it's great that you're doing something you're born to do. I personally find it a nightmare and wish someone would do the HR stuff for me. I'm not very good at it, I have to say. But I'm lucky that I don't have a problem because I have such a perfect team. I say I'm looking into coming out. I have a perfect team and they never caused me any issues and so hr is easy at the chamber
3: you are um, very lucky
1: i am very lucky i genuinely am very lucky i've got a really great team who did well i mean those awards were a demonstration of what we can do when we all work together so nadine are you ready for the chamber chiefs quickfire questions i am let's go okay and your time starts now chamber chiefs quickfire questions what is your favorite quote
3: Um, Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard.
1: I knew that. What's uh, your best advice you've ever been given?
3: Um, If you stay in your own lane, there's no traffic.
1: Uh, That's interesting. Worst business mistake you've ever made?
3: Ooh. Giving someone the wrong contract.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, Best boss you've ever had? No pressure.
3: um oh controversial but no, i must no, say
1: <laughs> too late was me um <laughs> my, 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 i'm so sorry current uh, boss now yeah yeah of course business uh, the good answer business do you wish you owned
3: oh um something to do with interior design
1: oh really fantastic uh, best thing about devon
3: ah uh, coastlines moors
1: worst thing about devon
3: mm, lack of diversity
1: i agree uh favorite country in the world
3: Ooh, Italy.
1: Really? Why Italy?
3: I just love um, the food, the people, just, yeah, everything about it. Next
1: question then. Pizza or curry? Mm, curry. Hey, interesting. Okay. Uh, uh, Boat or plane? Ooh, plane. Sea or country?
3: Ooh, country. Cat or dog? Dog.
1: Of course. Uh, Wine or beer? Uh, Wine. (laughs) Innie or outie? Oh, any. <laughs> Nobody's coming up without you yet. What fragrance are you currently wearing?
3: I am wearing Moogler Goddess.
1: Are you? I'm sure. How do you relax?
3: Oh, spa day.
1: Yeah, nice. Who supports you the most? My parents. Oh, great. Who was the most person you'd most like to have meet?
3: Uh, I would have loved to meet Nelson Mandela.
1: Yeah, wouldn't we all? Uh, and worst person you can think of meeting? Don't say me.
3: <laughs> um...
1: Oh, no, Beyonce. You on with Beyonce. Beyonce, no, definitely Buzzy. Uh, most important person you've ever met? Oh, Stuart Alfred. Hey, great answer. And would you believe that's time up? And what a way to end with the most important person you've ever met. Utter nonsense. And thank you for buttering me up. But Nadine mashing see, what a pleasure. So, thank you so much. I was surprised you didn't say that your favourite country was Zimbabwe. Isn't that where you're from?
3: It is, but it's not my favorite country. There's other places to see and appreciate
1: There's so many places to see and appreciate. I've not been to Italy, but it is on the list. So where can you recommend? Venice, for sure. Venice. Well, I look forward to you taking me there. (laughs) When you've made it big and got lots of money. It's me now, Stuart. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, you have made it big, let's face it. Genuinely, (laughs) sincerely, thank you for supporting us with the awards. That was brilliant. We really, really loved it. Thank you for being a member of the Chamber. And thank you for being my guest on Chamber Chief's Quickfire Questions, Nadine mashing
3: Thank you, Stuart. Lovely to see you.
0: Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. In conversation with, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Now, back to the conversation.
1: Hello there, I'm joined by Professor Penny Lindicay. I've got to be honest, I've just had to ask how to pronounce that because it's spelt unusually. I'm going to do a rare thing, I'm going to read out a bit of Penny's bio before we start. So Penny's a world-leading marine scientist at the forefront of pioneering research into the causes, effects and solutions of microplastics and anthropogenic particles, head of science for marine ecology and biodiversity at Plymouth Marine Laboratory, and holds an honorary professorship at the University of Exeter in the Faculty of Environment, Science and Economy. Penny studies the effects of environmental pollutants such as microplastics on marine organisms and ecosystems and uses that knowledge gain to explore nature-based solutions. And her work on the impact of microplastics in the marine environment has directly influenced policy in the UK and around the world, including the UK ban on microbeads in cosmetics. Also, you've won a Blue Planet Award. So that keeps you busy. So that's Monday out of the way. What do you do with the rest of the week?
4: <laughs> and I only work part-time. Yes. Do you really? <laughs> I do. Yeah.
1: How do you fit with that? I mean, my goodness me.
4: Well, I work at sort of 90%, so it's only just part-time. But it just gives me a little bit of time for myself and the
1: children too. Right. Well, I'll come back to yourself <laughs> and the children. Where did this passion for all things marine biology and environment come from?
4: Well, I was very fortunate to be brought up near the coast. I went to school in Totnes, so oh, not very far away. You're lady. Uh, I am, yes. I was brought up in Stoke Gabriel. Mm-hmm. So I was learning to sail about the same time as I learned to walk. And nothing was ever forced, but I just think I really appreciated the environment I grew up in. I was lucky that I followed what I felt I was good at and what I enjoyed at school, and that led me to do biology at Bath University. Okay. So it was a very applied course. Unfortunately, it did no marine biology. And actually, it's quite a long way from the coast.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, not the best place to do it.
4: No, maybe not. Fantastic university. It gave me a whole skill set, more perhaps in the medical side, looking at molecular biology Mm. and a real wide range of biology. But I did want to use some of that in the marine realm. Mm. And so I first came to Plymouth Marine Laboratory in about 92, I would say, Mm -hmm. as an undergraduate doing a placement. All right. And one thing led to another. And after my degree, I wrote a PhD with some of the staff at Plymouth Marine Laboratory and bought those medical sort of more molecular techniques into helping answer some of the problems and the ecological questions we see in the marine environment.
1: So you're a doctor. Yes. But not the sort where I show you my embarrassing rash.
4: No, a proper doctor. No, I, I, I shouldn't say that. No, uh, but you are I a just, doctor. I just not, wind not my a friends up doctor. that are medical doctors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: You're a proper doctor. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I said in your intro there, in your bio, that the work you did directly led to the removal of microbeads from cosmetics. Is that right? And how did that come about?
4: Oh, so I guess it's quite a long story. When I started working in marine biology, it wasn't all your whales and turtles and dolphins and everything. It was working on these really tiny animals called zooplankton, in mm-hmm. particular copepods. So they're a little bit like a tiny shrimp, a crustacean. Mm-hmm. We call them the mini beasts of the ocean. They might be small, but they're one of the most abundant species on our whole planet. And what they do is they eat the plants, which Draw, and draw down that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And then they're a food source for your more important bigger animals, mm. such as fish larvae and whales and that sort of thing. So, for many years, I was working on these tiny little animals that are very important in the marine environment. And then, sort of at the turn of the century almost, we realised that there were small plastics in the yeah. sea. And I think people were aware that there were larger plastic items, discarded fishing gear, plastic bags, all those horrible things floating Mm -hmm. around. And there was a lot of emotive pictures of those large plastic items causing a problem to charismatic animals. Mm -hmm. So the turtles mistaking plastic bags for uh, for their jellyfish and eating them birds feeding their young plastic that they'd find on the beach, your seals and dolphins entrapped in discarded fishing gear. Mm. So we were beginning to realise that was a problem. But when we realised there were these teeny tiny plastics Mm. that you don't readily see with the naked eye, I wanted to know whether they could actually be a problem to the small beast that I'd spent much of my career working on, the Mm. zooplankton. So work started with a then PhD student, Matthew Cole, and unfortunately we realised that all the types of zooplankton that we looked at in the North Atlantic had the ability to ingest, eat these microplastics. Mm. And then...
1: It cannot be a good thing because it's going to enter the whole food chain.
4: It is, absolutely. But it also is a worry on what they're doing to these really important organisms themselves. Mm. And so some of our work showed that, yes, they ingest them. Also, if they do, it has a negative impact on their health. Yes, they still produce eggs, but those eggs are smaller, they're likely to hatch. There's a whole host of impacts that we found. The plastics also have chemicals in them and they can act as endocrine disruptors. So that can change the way that the animals develop and when and how they molt. So all of these factors led us to provide evidence to our government and saying that at the moment we're putting in microbeads, so really tiny bits of plastic into a whole range of cosmetic products from shower gel, from face creams to toothpaste. And what happens is they go down the sink and they go through the wastewater treatment works and they end up in the sea. And when they're there, they're causing damage. So it was that evidence we sort of helped to give to government that made the legislation to ban them. Unfortunately, it's not a complete ban. It's a ban on what we call wash-off products. So you can't now have it in shower gel because you use shower gel. It goes straight Straight down the the drain. drain, But weirdly, you can have them in, say, face cream or foundation because you put it on, but you don't wash it off right away. You wash it off at the end of the day or the next day. So it's a bit madness. There's a lot of work still Still to do. do. Yeah, Yeah, That was
1: going to be my next question. Are we there yet or is there like a massive work to do? There's quite a lot of work to do.
4: Yeah, we've proven without doubt we don't want plastics in the environment nobody does you know not plastic manufacturers don't that's quite a valuable commodity to have there so without a doubt we need to stop it at its source Mm. you know we need to turn off that tap when the bath is overflowing Mm. and that's what we're working towards at the moment when I started microplastics are small plastic particles but that's a huge range of different particles that come from different sources so the more work we've done yes you can get things from From cosmetic products. You can get the breakdown of plastics from larger items. So they end up in the marine environment. They get brittle through the UV light. With the action of the wind and the waves, they break down into smaller and smaller particles. You can get small fibers that come from textiles. Mm. So not many people know, but if you do a normal wash, a normal sort of five-kilogram wash, then over 700,000 microfibers can be released from your washing machine if the clothes that you put in are, are made of a, a type of plastic like polyester or nylon. Yeah. And perhaps most recently, it's the tire wear particles. Mm. Absolutely. We didn't originally start picking them up. So we've done a lot of work, quite a lot of work here and also globally from the Antarctic down to South America about what do we find in the natural environment? What are the plastics and perhaps where do they come from? The tyre particles are slightly different. We didn't detect them with the normal way that we were detecting plastics. So we've actually had to develop methods to be able to determine where these tyre particles are. They're also Black, so you don't readily see them. It's much easier seeing a bright blue or bright red fiber. Mm-hmm. So we're working at the moment with Plymouth University at a project, trying to find out what the entry points of these tire wear particles are. You know, we've been looking just off the bridges locally. And as soon as it rains, they get washed into the streams, they go into the environment, they blow off the bridges. And there's lots of them there. And we're working with mathematical modelers to find out where do they go. And when we know where they go, we can start doing some sort of risk assessment to know whether Mm. they're impacting on the organisms Mm. there.
1: Working backwards, yeah, what you can do about it. Are you despondent about the scale of the task or are you excited about how you can work this back and do some good?
4: Probably depends what day of the week it is sometimes. (laughs) It's a little bit of both. I am positive and I think the positive thing is We seem to have all our ducks in the row. There's nobody that wants to have plastic in the natural environment. So I think we're all working towards the same thing without a doubt. As I said, it's a valuable commodity. A lot of it can be recycled. But the way we do that can be a little bit challenging at times because we're working against some really big oil companies that make an awful lot of money by producing plastics out of the oil. So, you know, they have a different set of criteria (laughs) and they don't always consider what happens to the plastic at its end of life when they're designing it. So, yeah, a little bit of both. But no, mostly I think I'm positive. You know, it's quite an accessible topic. We can speak to people about it. I think generally people want to help.
1: To stop the problem, I think maybe because it's quite obviously affecting us, isn't it? You know, indirectly, but you can see if you can see it, and you think that's going into the food chain and into fish, and you know, it certainly concerns me. I don't really want to ingest plastic.
4: No, exactly, and I think one thing to make clear is that yes we've looked at what we call trophic transfer. So how that plastic may be ingested by something small and then passed on to a bigger Mm. and bigger organism. And that is a possibility. But in actual fact, we've looked at the risk. And the risk of things like mercury and other pollutants are greater. They do what we call biomagnify. So if they're eaten by a certain amount of zooplankton and then those zooplankton are eaten by a fish species, then you get an accumulation of that mercury. With plastics, it's not necessarily the same because yes, they eat it, but they also pass it at the other yeah. end as well. So it doesn't tend to accumulate mm. and magnify, but it's still a huge risk as to what it's doing yeah. at the base of the food chain. And because it's so small, it's ingested by a huge range of animals across the whole of the marine food web. But as you said, I think As much of a risk is buying a lot of food in plastic, which has chemicals in it that we don't necessarily need. And because we wear synthetic clothing and furniture and carpets, the dust that we see has got so much plastic in nowadays Mm. that just that falling out of the air is a worry.
1: I hate the fact everything comes so overwrapped, especially if it's something that's a consumable that is going to go off within a few days, why do we need to have plastic that's going to keep it wrapped up for a thousand years rather than, you know, just a few days? What was wrong with having, you know, your fruit vegetables in a paper bag? You know, I don't know why we've gone so heavily reliant on plastic in the food packaging industry. Yeah, and
4: you're absolutely right. It's one of the biggest problems is what we call the single-use plastic. Yeah. So it's a really great product. You know, it's not evil. It's absolutely essential. We just have to be much cleverer in the way we use that plastic. And about 50% of the plastic that we use is single-use. And using an item which is designed to be really robust and last a very long time once before it gets thrown away doesn't make sense at all.
1: no. Total madness. I don't want to be too depressed about this. Do you think the oceans will ever be clean? Do you think we'll ever get rid of microplastics and pollutants from the ocean?
4: I don't think they'll ever be completely free of it. But if we can stop what's going in now and it's escalating really quickly, then I think that the amount that's there, hopefully the ocean itself will be able to cope with and it won't be hugely detrimental. Mm. But if we carry on adding as much plastic as we currently do with all the other stresses that it faces, such as climate change and global warming and extreme weather events, that's when we're going to have a trouble.
1: And if we turned it off today, just flick a switch and it stopped, would the ocean clean itself eventually or are those plastics there forever?
4: those plastics are there for a very long time and actually it's that what we call legacy plastic so as you said if we are able to switch it off now we're still going to have a vast amount of plastic and ideally we need to be involved in the solution to remove it I know some people just you know, feel what is the point of a beach clean you know if we take it out just more's going in etc mm. but actually I think every little we do can help mm. and a beach clean is relatively simple it's a point at which the ocean has put it up on that shoreline that we Mm. can easily collect. And if we can take it away, it's going to stop it blowing or getting washed back into Mm. the ocean again.
1: Mm. And the evidence of how long they last, I don't know if you saw on the news a month or two ago, there was a crisp packet that had washed up on a Cornish beach. And by the promotional material that was on it, they could date it. And it was a 1970s crisp packet. And you think, that's bad, isn't it? 50 years, and it's still an identifiable It's
4: still there. Absolutely. And I think sometimes I drive friends and family mad because we have to pick up the litter when I'm walking on our local beach. And I find some weird and wonderful things. Just the other day, I found packaging that had had a chicken in it. And that had come from Asia. Right. So I presume maybe it had come off a ship. And again, that was sort of 30, 40. Years. It was really old right. and had come an awful long way. Mm. And then you start wondering what the story is behind it and how yeah. it got there as well.
1: There's a surprising amount of stuff gets chucked off ships or, you know, deliberately or accidentally, you know, when these big containers get washed off and they're full of stuff. Yeah. I mean, they're still finding Lego, aren't they, that fell out of a container ship somewhere? Yes. Yes, yeah. there
4: is the Lego hunt. And we see sometimes these tiny plastic particles that we call nurdles or mermaid's tears. Yes. I'm sure you'll have mm-hmm. heard of those. And they get shipped all over the globe. They get melted down and made into different products. Mm-hmm. But the way they're transported, we get so many spills out yeah. of container ships. And so you walk along any beach here and you'll see along that strand line where you get sort of all the seaweed and the wood washed up as well. If you look closely, you get these small bits of plastic
1: as well. It's sad. It shouldn't be happening in this day and age, should it? So if there was one thing you wanted people to do, one change you wanted them to make, what would it be?
4: I think it would be to believe that you can make a difference too many people I speak to say there's no point in me doing anything because nobody else does and I think it would be to try and be really considerate consumers and I think you've said it Do you need those single-use plastic items? Mm. It's so easy to be able to use a proper water bottle. In Mm. Devon, we have some of the best, you know, loveliest tasting water. Why buy water in a plastic bottle? It's a very different story. When you work with developing countries, they don't have the infrastructure Mm. to have clean water. That's completely different. But here, we don't have to use as much single-use plastic. Mm. We can try and vote with our feet in supermarkets and not buy things that are in plastic trays wrapped in plastic in a Mm. plastic bag we can reuse coffee cups take our own with us take Mm. reusable bags take reusable bottles and I think slowly over time people will appreciate that and it Mm. becomes more acceptable to do so
1: and it's just getting in the habit isn't it once you get in the habit I recycle I split my waste out and I can remember the first time we had to do that it seemed like such a pain now it embarrasses me when I throw a bag of rubbish away that isn't recyclable I just look at it and think, that's just another thing we're going to have to bury somewhere or do something with, you know. I try and do it. Moving away a little bit from environment, you own sheep. (laughs) I understand. What is this about?
4: (laughs) We're very fortunate to live in the South Hams. And we bought a derelict house and spent many years probably still going, trying to renovate that. And with it came an old Devon cider orchard. And so we were told by some friends at the time that the best way to manage that so that you keep a nice population of rodents for the barn owls is with sheep. So Mm -hmm. yes, we came home with a few rare breed sheep. So, A's in actual fact yeah. and they're basically our lawnmower so oh, they, they so keep the natural grass natural lawnmower lamb, natural lawnmower for a few years we did breed them and we had lambs and lambs in the freezer and everything but to be fair I think we just got a little bit too busy yeah. so now we just have yeah, some very friendly lawnmowers that get very well fed on apples as well
1: <laughs> <laughs> do they get drunk do the apples sort of <laughs> ferment or whatever they do and you know you get drunk sheep wandering around
4: well we attempt sometimes to make apple juice and cider and so what once we've like chopped up all the apples and mulched them and pressed them, that just gets discarded in the corner of the orchard as Crunchy. a bit of compost. So I'd be surprised if they hadn't at yeah. some point. sheep in yeah. Devon. Of
1: course. <laughs> and I understand you're one of these mad people who cause themselves intense pain and exhaustion while bouncing around in an open boat. <laughs> what is that all about? I
4: think that might be gig rowing. You're gig probably rowing. referring to... Yeah, I am. Yes, Unless yes. there's something else you want to say. No, no, that's probably that's gig that rowing. That's is
1: exhausting, isn't it?
4: I don't know. I love it. I was brought up sailing. We used to own a boat and then derelict house and children sort of meant that there wasn't the money or the time for that. Mm-hmm. So I think with the gig rowing, you belong to a local club, mine's mm. Um, You go out on the water just for an hour. Well, actually, I cox so a couple of hours, and you just feel that you've had your fresh air, you've had your exercise, you've had a nice social coffee afterwards. Ah,
1: so you Absolutely. cox, you don't do the actual rowing.
4: Oh, I do do the rowing, but well. yeah, okay. I do the coxing, so I end up doing a bit of both. And oh, okay, my husband and I do the juniors, and yeah, so I cox the men and then row for the ladies as well.
1: Right, blimey, <laughs> mm-hmm. keeps you fit, I should think. Yeah,
4: it keeps me out of trouble.
1: And speaking of renovating derelict things, you bought a fire engine. Yes, that's true. So I blame my
4: yeah, I blame my eldest daughter for that actually. Okay. So, you know, looking at eBay too much. Right. And we'd just sold the Camper van that we had and we thought it'd be nice to have something a little bit bigger that we can fit the dog in and you know perhaps go a bit further and we found an old fire engine it was actually a fire emergency response vehicle right. and yes bought that. What
1: does it's that a, mean? So it's not it's, a full-on so size?
4: Like, it is full-on size but right. it didn't have all the sort of bars for the water and the ladders it more went if there was perhaps an environmental oil spill uh, or okay. to support something bigger.
1: Right.
4: So yeah it's still a seven and tonner. Red with big sort of chevrons down the back.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's still red with chevrons down the back. Yes. yes and you've converted it into a camper van.
4: Yes. I say we,
1: but with a lot of help from my brother, I have to be honest. Right. He's good at that sort He's of He's very
4: good at his carpentry. So a lot of reused wood in there, little Belfast sink. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's been absolutely fantastic. Sounds
1: great. Yeah. I've got to ask, it can't be very... um are doing many MPG, can it? No.
4: No, yeah. that's very true. No, So we went down to Corsica this year, and I have to say it, it took a little while to get down there. Slowly and surely yeah. is probably the way to go. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully still better than flying, and we're off-grid because we have the solar panel.
1: So I understand I'm not particularly clued up on environmental stuff, but I am told that to keep something that's already built going and going is actually far more environmentally friendly than buying a new version of the same So you are actually helping. Although it may not do a lot of MPG, it's better than throwing it away and getting some modern vehicle that's taken a lot of energy to produce and then a lot of plastic and stuff into it.
4: Yeah, I like that thought as well. I'm definitely somebody who likes reusing and heads the derelict house and I hate to see things being thrown away. So yeah, it has been lovely and most of what we've equipped it with has been sort of reused and Mm. upcycled from a, I think it has a squash court, wooden floor that's been (laughs) reused and offcuts and this that and everything else and yeah it's great it's been really really lovely sort of family vehicle.
1: It's funny so my friend Pete Goss the sailor he had a floor that was taken up at Manadon when Manadon Naval College was knocked down to build housing and he did his whole ground floor in it and it transpires I think that they were old warships So that wooden floor was from old warships. It's quite incredible.
4: Isn't it? And what a lovely story as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: He built a boat called Spirit of Mystery, which was a recreation of the smallest migrant vessel ever to make it to Australia. And it was called the Mystery. And he had bits of famous boats on it. They were renovating HMS Victory at the time. And he wrote to them and said, can I have a piece of wood? And they said, yeah, and sent him a bit of wood from the Victory and it was on the side of the chart table with HMS Victory carved into it. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, that's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, (laughs) have you travelled a lot with your role or for leisure?
4: Yes, I have, for both. I have to say, certainly for my role, quite a lot. And, you know, that is a balance as well. You know, if we're talking mm. about carbon footprint. But, yeah, it's been great. We work with developing countries to help okay. them to try and look at solutions to sort of plastic waste. Mm-hmm. So I've been to Peru and this year I was in the Galapagos, which was a really right, now lovely
1: experience. Because not many people can get to go to the Galapagos, can they?
4: No, and not to get into those sort of nature reserves. And to be able to work with the local people there is a huge.
1: Yeah privilege so I don't know much about the Galapagos does it have a native population or is it only people who are kind of doing environmental research and so forth woman
4: yeah it does have a population mostly that have come from Ecuador okay. and actually you know some of there's a couple of bigger towns which are fairly well developed and certainly oh, okay. support a lot of the tourism be that on so boats or
1: actually they're not even like little villages because I always think of it I don't know maybe I'm thinking Master and Commander that film where it's just there's nothing it's just you know beautiful flora and fauna
4: there's some islands where there aren't inhabitants on there definitely but no there are some yeah towns Small, yeah. but definitely some towns. And that was one of the things we were working on, that they do have their own sort of plastic pollution
1: problem. They have problem. their own challenges. Yeah, yes, yeah.
4: exactly. It's harder when you're so far away from anywhere trying to recycle yeah. and trying to deal with some of the plastic which has been brought in.
1: I went to Thailand and I went to the bay where they filmed the film The Beach. And it was really stunning, but the pollution was disgusting. I mean, I was snorkeling, and I won't tell you the things that floated past me, but it wasn't pleasant. And I hear now that you can't go in there, They've completely banned tourist vessels in there, which on the one hand is sad because it was beautiful, But on the other hand, I completely get it. I mean, it was just really sad that such a beautiful place had so much pollution.
4: And it's so difficult because that pollution doesn't always come from the place where you are. You know, our ocean has no boundaries. It it transports plastic from all over the place. And that's why you can end up seeing some of it on pristine islands in the middle of the Atlantic where no one lives. Mm. So that makes it quite
1: a complex issue to deal with. Yeah. So where was your favorite place in all your travels?
4: I like going north as well. I've been very lucky to Good. work up in Greenland, a oh. little island off of the west coast of Greenland called Disco Bay. Disco. Uh, as Disco. In- Yes, but spelt with a K. But oh, yeah, I spelt disco. Game. I'm glad
1: this is an audio podcast, otherwise, people would have seen yeah. me dancing there. <laughs> well, that would have put people off. Yeah, sorry.
4: Oh, I have to say, disco is a lot easier to pronounce than probably the real name, which ah. I think is Kakatazuak. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. I've had the opportunity of working at sea before, so spending sort of up to six weeks working on larger research ships. That was in the Erminger Basin between Greenland and Iceland. Galapagos was a real highlight and then just last month I was in Japan as well which is somewhere that I've never been and that was fantastic
1: I've always kind of fancied Japan because it's so culturally different do you know what I mean I think can you get much more culturally different you know I'm told it's quite overwhelming for some people when they go because it's so different
4: it is so different and I think being a bit of a country bumpkin coming from the middle of the South Hands it's pretty busy
1: in places yeah, yeah. as well. I, see, I think I wanna go, but like you, know, I'm not sure I want to be that busy. It's like I like going to London. I like to visit it, <laughs> but not for very long. I like to come away yes. as well. Yeah. yeah and maybe absolutely. I'm turning into a country bumpkin. <laughs> is there anywhere still on the bucket list, anywhere you think, Oh, I've got to get there? Or is there too many dimensions? To
4: Ah, oh, I'd like to go up to the Arctic. I go up to mm. Svalbard, so mm. I've done bits of the Arctic, but not all. And I guess I'd love to get down to the Antarctic as well. Mm. So yeah,
1: you're seeking out the cold. I'm not sure about this.
4: I know no, it's strange, I think I'd be isn't seeking it? Out some I warm
1: quite... tropical island somewhere. <laughs> no, actually, I do fancy that. And my late mum desperately wanted to see the Northern Lights, and the closest I got because she was unwell, she couldn't travel. I got a virtual reality headset, courtesy of one of our members, actually, and she saw the Northern Lights through a virtual reality headset. But I would love to go. And I would think if I went there, you know, I'd yeah. love to see the Northern Lights. It's spectacular.
4: I was very lucky. This time last year, I had to go and vive a PhD student at the University of Tromso. Oh. So I went and my eldest daughter had just finished A-level. So I was like, go on, you come as well. And yeah. so we were literally just in the city of Tromso. Right. And we were walking back one night to the hotel and the sky just started. And wow. it was absolutely fantastic. I've mean, seen it before, but not like that. That just felt so real and yeah. so close.
1: And does it pulsate and say, move like you see on the telly? Yeah, you know?
4: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it does. And to start with, I was talking to colleagues who live there and I was sort of saying, "Well, you know, what do you think our chances are? Do you think we'll find it? Where do we need to go? Where's the best spot? Yeah. And they were saying, oh, you know, it's really difficult. There is a forecast. You know, you've got a probability of where to find it find it but just keep your eyes open and with that I'd just seen a flicker of green in the sky and I said well is that it and they sort of looked up and went no 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 you'll know when you see it and a couple of minutes later i was like but look that's really developing and they sort of went oh hang on a minute so we walked a little way away from the sort of street light but you really didn't have to go far and the colors it's your greens going into purples and it's moving and it almost disappears and then it comes back in waves of curtains it's absolutely fantastic
1: i want to see it i want to see it So, I mean, looking at your biog, you're obviously someone who likes a challenge mentally and physically. So what's next?
4: Oh, that's a good question. So working quite a lot at the moment with the Global Plastics Treaty. Mm. So we're involved in the UK. We've got the International Negotiating Committees. The last one's just been in Nairobi. And I'm finding that quite a challenge because we've got a scientist coalition, Mm -hmm. but we also have a lot of big oil companies and a lot of manufacturing companies. And as I said previously, you know, the plastic pollution knows no boundaries. To be able to tackle the problem, we do need this global treaty. But we're up against some um, big players. And I mm. think we're just really fighting for the fact that any decisions that are made are based on really robust scientific evidence. We don't want to jump from the frying pan into the fire. People are branding around where we need biodegradables. We need plastics made from a biological feedstock. So it's mm. a bioplastic. So we're not using fossil fuels. And that's all great, but we can't have greenwashing. What is biodegradable? We don't even have a proper term at the moment for a definition definition exactly for what biodegradable is. It might say biodegradable, but that's an industrial biodegradable. It doesn't matter if you put it in your compost heap or it ends up in the environment. It can be there years later. Yeah. So just trying to Provide the evidence to make sure that any decisions are made are sound ones, that they're evidenced, or that, you know, we look at them and just make sure that our alternatives are better. We're such a clever race. You know, we can make a product which isn't damaging to the environment. I'm absolutely sure of that. You just need that time to do it properly.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, we just need to put some time and energy. I and mean, we can get over anything if we know what we're dealing with and put our minds together. Mm. I think Sitting Bull said, let us sit down, put our minds together and see what a world we can make for our children. I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? That's it is. That's what we should do.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it's funny you say about greenwashing. There's an advert on television at the moment that's driving me nuts. I won't say for what product it is, but it says, including a plant-based ingredient. It's like, well, so what? Good. Yeah, yeah great. No, absolutely. It doesn't say it's made of plant-based ingredients. It is for a chemical cleaning product that says includes a plant. Well, well, I stick a leaf in there and that makes it good. You know, yeah. I find that sort of thing a bit irritating. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> they're trying to say our oh, green credentials are great, but they're still making chemicals you know, I'd rather there was a bit more depth to it.
4: Yeah, well actually, you know, if we take a polymer, whether it's come from fossil fuels, obviously that's not good, but if it comes from plants, it's not great if we're planting huge swathes of fields just to make into plastics as well. And by the time they're processed and have other chemicals added to them, it doesn't necessarily make them a good product. No. You know, we need to be wise and work on waste products, something that's going to be thrown away anyway, and use that as our stock for making innovative plastics.
1: It's very complicated isn't it and i think some people are kind of like they don't even know where to start because they thought they were doing the right thing by buying an electric car and then you find that the electric car has had minerals mined and that's destroyed part of the environment and then to bring all the parts together has used so much carbon traveling around the world you know so it's a complex business isn't it we're going to have to find some pretty good solutions end-to-end solutions i think
4: yeah absolutely and make it easier for the consumer it's really hard isn't it even myself as you said you sort your recycling and that's a bit complicated and then realizing that perhaps you know some of our biggest waste products are like the milk bottles and Mm. we're very lucky we've managed to source milk in glass
1: bottles and Mm.
4: i have a bit of a passion for fizzy water
1: we always i mean you know i can remember having the milk bottle on the doorstep with a Thing. Yep,
4: the one the birds used to, to peck, peck at to if you left it <laughs> too
1: yeah. long. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but why have we gone back? Anyway, we well, no, well, can't uh, solve it all. But...
4: No, the number of times I say to people, you know, we need to go back and speak to our grandparents. They yeah. didn't have all that single-use plastic. You no. know, they perhaps went to the butchers once a week. You know, they mm. bought locally, didn't yeah. they? They bought Wrapped stuff in, in season. Of paper. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah we've sort of gone backwards. But also that was economic, wasn't it? It was make, do and mend. You couldn't mm. just throw stuff away now. It's so cheap to buy clothing you just if something's got a hole in it you throw it away you don't patch it yeah people don't darn socks anymore do they they just buy some new ones so yeah we are a big consuming society aren't we
4: yeah and i think it's just too easy to throw something in the bin as you said and too cheap to replace it and we really need to think about what else we can do as well as reducing what we use but also yeah reusing it and recycling it and repurposing
1: it as well But you're not despondent. You think there's still things we can do? We're turning the corner?
4: Yeah, I really do. And actually, if you speak to our younger generation, they know about the problem already. They're really aware of it. Absolutely. And at the moment, we're working with the Primary Science Teaching Trust to produce a booklet that doesn't make plastic evil. Because I think sometimes the children are just thinking, oh, it's evil, it's evil. And actually, you know, we need it. We need it for some of the medical applications and that. We just need to be much more sensible in the way we use it Mm. and what we choose to buy.
1: Yeah, you're right about the kids. It's funny, my brother and I were having this conversation about things that our parents' generation did that now, looking back on it, look terrible. I mean, why did they do that? They didn't kind of know better. I said, what are our kids' generation going to say about us? And he said, they're going to say that we watched the planet go to hell and did nothing about it. You know, and I think that sadly is the way our generation will be viewed.
4: And Wouldn't uh, that be awful? Yeah. I mean, already, you know, they're saying that this is the Anthropocene, you know, mm. because we're having an impact on the planet, that we're leaving that signature in the sediment. You know, mm. in many years' time, they take a sediment core and it'll be like, oh, that's the one with all the plastic in it. Yeah, yeah. That'd be horrible to do that. And I think keeping that in mind does keep me really positive. You know, we want our children, our children's children to enjoy the environment that we have as much as we do.
1: Yeah, well, what a yeah. great place to end. Annie, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for all the incredible work you've done. And you're doing so much. I mean, leading to that direct ban on microbeads, even though there's still a way to go. You're doing really good, positive stuff and such exciting stuff going on in our city and our county. So thank you very much for joining me, Penny.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. In Conversation With is supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors, helping you go digital and choose the best approach for your business. Westcott's We're Here Produced by Fresh Air Studios Full audio production services for business podcasts and corporate communications Visit freshairstudios.com Presented by Stuart Elford Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess Moon Production support by Lisa Hartwell Video content by Mark Stevenson Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.